1: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com.
2: I think it definitely has that impact because it disempowers the Muslim community. It makes them very fearful. Um, I know of examples where people have said, actually, you know, I was going to ask for my child to have a place to pray. But I'm a bit worried that if I start kicking up a fuss with the school about prayer spaces, okay. then maybe that would be considered a bit extreme. Um, so these conversations are being had or, yeah. you know, like young girls when they want to start wearing hijab and then the parents are like, actually, maybe don't wear it yet because it might raise a bit of a flag. And we have had cases where people have been referred um, because they started wearing the hijab.
3: Dr. Layla Ayt al-Haj, As-salamu wa and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim podcast.
2: Wa alaikum Thank you for having me back. <laughs>
3: Well, you, you're, you're, we're at a time where uh, there's a lot going on, and I think you've been in uh, the press and uh, there's been uh, a lot of discussion around this Shawcross report. Uh, now, the Shawcross report, as I understand it, was commissioned by the government to report on the state of PREVENT and its strategy, and it was released last week. So what I want you to do today is unpick the specifics of the report. I've invited you in to, to really understand the problems with the report and to give your forensic analysis, because, uh, you know, you provided uh, some great detail to the broader media. Actually, let's speak about that, uh, the broader media. So you've you've engaged in a number of uh, interviews in the last, in the past week. What's been your experience from these interviews in the mainstream press?
2: Um, I think what we knew before we were going into to speak to the press was that, um, and even before the Shawcross report was published, was that there was going to be a very clear focus on the idea of Islamism, uh, Muslim groups, um, Islamist extremism. And of course, the report was published and it had almost verbatim, like some of the leaks that had come out previously. Okay. Um, we were approached by certain media outlets. And indeed, we were also uh, pitching to certain media outlets that, look, we have something to say about this. We have clients that you know, have gone through um, experiences with Prevent who would also like to speak. Um, and we haven't spoken to as many media outlets as you would anticipate, given mm-hmm. that the People's Review of Prevent, for which I'm co-author, is the only like authoritative piece that is an alternative to the Shawcross Review, nor for the fact that at Prevent Watch, we've dealt with over 600 clients. So you would expect that we'd have more media interest, firstly. yeah. yeah. Um, secondly, I think the way in which a lot of media has been framed has been very much... Um, Still, in keeping with the lines that Shawcross is putting out that actually, look, the threat is Islamist, yeah. we need to refocus on that, um, and any far-right referrals have been a mistake of some kind or have been too broad. Okay. And I don't feel like much of the media has really challenged that. So even where we've been invited to speak, for example, I don't feel there's been much of a pushback against that. But there have been some media outlets, particularly articles, not so much broadcast, mm. that have started to question like some of the obvious errors in the report.
3: Right. So let's talk about the report. Um, what does it outline in, in specifics? Can you just get, talk us through the specifics of the Shawcross report? Because it's quite a lengthy report, I can see. Yeah.
2: It is, yeah. Um, so it's almost 200 pages, mm. but the overarching theme is that Shawcross believes, and I put it in that term because he mentions a lot throughout the report, I believe, I feel, I believe, I feel, which is strange for uh, an independent review yeah. to have this constantly running throughout. He believes that there is too much of a focus on far-right extremism, not enough on what he terms Islamist extremism. Um, And essentially that's like the overarching message of this whole report. Everything under that talks about um, delivery of Prevent, his experience speaking to Prevent practitioners and other members within that overarching frame. Mm -hmm. Like It always comes back to that. So as you go through the report, no matter what chapter you're in, You can see he's bringing it back to justify that actually Prevent needs to be refocused on Islamist threat. um, And this far right threat is dangerously close to mainstream um, and dangerously close to, you know, what politicians are saying um, and people much like himself.
3: Right. Okay. so let's talk about William Shawcross. What's his background and why did Muslim groups like yourself, like groups like Prevent Watch, why did you boycott uh, his inquiry?
2: So I think when the independent review was initially announced back in 2019, we have to rewind to there. When it was initially announced, I think there was hope that the scope of that review would include everything. Like everything would be on the table, a genuine independent review of Prevent, which was a lot to ask given that, you know, time and again, you'd have people like Pretty Patel saying, you know, it's here to stay, Amber Rudd, like everybody who was in office at some point was talking about Prevent being there to stay yeah. even throughout the, like, four years that we've been waiting for this review. Um, when Shawcross was appointed, he was the second independent reviewer. So, so who already, came, who came before him? Lord Carlisle came before him. Right. So Lord he was Carlyle, an
3: independent um, reviewer of terrorism laws, if I remember right? I
2: think so, but yeah. he was involved in the 2011 Prevent Strategy Review. Right. So it wasn't an independent review as such, but it was there was a revision in 2011. Okay. He was part of that, and he admitted yeah. that he was biased towards Prevent because he had been involved in the review. Oh, right. But that wasn't the only problem with him being placed as independent reviewer. Even the way in which you was supposed to um, appoint an independent reviewer wasn't followed in the appointment of Lord Carlisle. Mm. So there was a legal challenge by um, Human Rights Watch, and essentially he stepped down. Uh, he didn't like go through with that legal challenge. He stepped down. And right. we were waiting for some time for another reviewer to come forth. Right. And then William Shawcross was appointed.
3: Before we get to William Mm -hmm. Shawcross, um, an organisation like Prevent Watch, and of course I've heard from CAGE and and other uh, civil liberties organisations, that Prevent, there is a need to have a review of Prevent. So you don't have a problem with, in fact, I would imagine you want there to be an independent review of Prevent. Is that right?
2: I think most people would have welcomed an independent review of Prevent, including ourselves. Okay. But it would have had to be genuinely independent and a genuine review of Prevent, not a review of Prevent only to um, strengthen Prevent, because that already lies on the assumption that it's working um, and doesn't take into uh, consideration any of the concerns that have been put forth over the past decade, more than a decade now of Prevent. So when William Shawcross was appointed, I think one of the main considerations and concerns about Prevent is its discriminatory nature. We know that Prevent was introduced for the Muslim community. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that money was given to Muslim organizations in the first few years of Prevent in order to kind of deal with their own problem, right? This is a Muslim problem. Here you go as Muslim organizations and mosques. You keep an eye. You do some courses and programs for your own community. It's your problem. Take ownership of it. And this is where we get the I condemn, I condemn, I condemn on like speed play. Um, So when William Shawcross was appointed, essentially... He was somebody who has come out publicly and made statements that are problematic when it comes to um, Islam. So he said, as, yeah. he said Islam is one of the greatest threats um, in Europe.
3: Really? So where did he say this?
2: He said this quite a few years back. Yeah. Um, I cannot remember where he said it, <laughs> but he did say this, really? and this is one of many things that he has said. So he has, um, he has supported every single war and terror. Um, legislation that has come through the UK so it just felt a bit strange that he was the person appointed somebody who was very in line with everything the government had put forward including Prevent Um, he had been the head of the charity commission uh, at a time where Muslim charities were disproportionately shut down and targeted by the charity commission he had been director at the Henry Jackson Society also known for their very um, anti-Muslim stance um and he is a fellow at Policy Exchange, who's also very well known for their anti-Muslim stance.
3: Can you tell me about the role Policy Exchange and the Henry Jackson Society play in fomenting this type of hatred or animus against Islam or Muslims?
2: So these types of think tanks put themselves forward as that as think tanks, like right. we're independent think tanks, yeah. even though they have a very firm, like far right narrative. Hmm. Um, and they are heavily influential when it comes to government. Mm. So even the Shawcross Review, there are a number of times where he's just quoting um, Policy Exchange or Henry Jackson Society or members who have been part of that. So it's all like one small clique, and if you follow through those people, you find that people who are at HGS, who are at Policy Exchange, vice versa, and it's like a revolving door of the same people that you see in these spaces. But they have a lot of influence, and their reports are taken um, as part of, you know, decisions being made to change policy, particularly around Prevent or any other kind of foreign fighter or Islamist type extremism slash terrorism yeah. um, topic, even though they are not authorities in any of these subject matters. Right.
3: So when you say they're not authorities, you mean they don't have the skill set to, to to truly understand the Muslim community? What What's what why do you doubt their uh, their ability to uh, to understand you know the, the issues within the Muslim community?
2: Just looking at the um, profiles of their researchers, right. it doesn't carry much weight. Yeah, um, these are researchers who have put out papers that have become very influential. And you're just thinking, where where did these people come from? What is their background? How do you know how do they become an authority on what extremism is or you know, what Islamist, as this term they like to use, what Islamist extremism is. Yeah. Um, so that's what I mean by they're not an authority. They're researchers who put in this research forward Yeah. are not coming from a place where you would expect somebody to come and rightly so, you would question somebody's uh, background when putting forward such a report.
3: Now, when Prevent began under the Labour government, as you said, there was a tendency to throw money at the community or community organisations that were willing to fight so-called islamism or or the threat of extremism Uh, so this money was i mean there were millions that were given out to to various organizations and if i remember right that strategy was criticized by the conservative government uh, and um, maybe they narrowed the scope of prevent and they specified the types of groups they would be funding in the future at least when cameron came in in 2010 that seemed to be the overarching criticism of the labor government but it seems like uh, uh, Shawcross is calling for an even more narrower field of of Muslim uh, helpers or community organizations that should be trusted by the government. Can can you unpick that? What's going on there?
2: So he makes reference to where prevent funding has gone yeah. um, and to some of these groups that have been funded by the Home Office, essentially Home Office approved, yeah. funded prevent um not practitioners, but yeah, who are running these programs. Mm. Um, And he makes reference to the fact that funding has gone in the wrong place and he singles out that um, people who have been funded are known for extremist ideas and he calls on Muslim groups in particular. Um, He doesn't make any reference to any other type of group who might have got funding and actually also had extremist views. Mm. Now, I'm aware of at least two um, that do come from that side of the fence in terms of the far right, mm-hmm. who have also been misfunded, let's call it. But he makes no reference to that. Right. He focuses it purely on, you know, you can't trust Muslims essentially because they will have extremist thoughts and ideas, potentially go on to commit terror acts. Yeah, You can't even trust the Muslims who you think are on your side by giving them money because they are also in that camp. So it's from both sides. The, the argument essentially that he's making is you can't trust Muslims because they're extreme regardless of where you think they sit on the fence.
3: Right. And you said earlier on that they're they're trying to de-emphasize far-right extremism and focus on Islamist, in inverted commas, extremism. Uh, what's the motive behind that? Why would the government do that?
2: I think current government has shown its true colors. Um, you know, to call something mainstream in cur- current government is... Um, far cry from where it is. Mainstream has definitely become more far-right, as we can see. Um, A lot of the views by the current conservative government would be classed as far-right. And I think there's a danger that if they continue down this trajectory of focusing on far-right extremism, they themselves, and he mentions this in the report, you know, by this definition, you know, this particular MP or a certain uh, member would be classed. He doesn't mention who in the report, but he says, you know, a, a senior MP would be, classified here. And, you know, these people would be classified here. So he can see the danger. And we did predict this and we mentioned it in the People's Review of Prevent a year before this report came out, that actually, if there is going to be a shift towards more um, Islamist-focused extremism, Mm -hmm. then the only reason that could be is because they recognize the danger they're falling into by focusing more far-right narratives.
3: Okay. So Shawcross talks about an emphasis on trying to understand the ideology that underpins Islamism. And uh, he argues that Islamism is a, it's that conveyor belt idea, I suspect, that we spoke about previously. Islamism, undergirding Islamism, are a series of value systems and concepts that we need to battle. What types of ideas are you really referring to here?
2: So firstly, he tries to differentiate and outright denies that By using the term Islamism or Islamist, it has anything to do with the normative Muslim and Islamic practices and values. So he just says, I disagree. I mean, there's no evidence as to how he can tangibly remove these things, but he just says, I disagree. This is what's been said, but I disagree.
3: So he's saying Islam is different to Islamism. Islamism is a, a perverse interpretation of Islam.
2: No, he's saying that basically Islamists are rooted by their ideology. Right. And then he goes on to further define ideology and says, well, you know, ideology is just a set of beliefs and ideas. Mm. Um and that Islamists use this ideology to basically underpin their lives, their political, their like lifestyles, which most Muslims and most other th- faiths mm. would agree their faith underpins and determines their lifestyle and their decisions, yes. be it political or otherwise um, so this definition is problematic because you can't on one hand say no it has nothing to do with practicing Islam yeah and then on the other hand said, well actually just the mere fact that you have this underlying ideology and your ideology is Islam right because yeah. there's no such thing as Islamist ideology or Islamism ideology, and by his own definition he's actually saying, this is your underpinnings, like your, your values, your beliefs. yeah um, So it's very bizarre what he's trying to argue for. And in his own argument, he's unraveling that it does have a lot to do with your faith. And so as a Muslim, by default, you would be caught in this definition.
3: So I want to focus on that. So I've got a quote from his report. Um, so he argues that there are a number of tendencies that contribute to Islamism that need to be fought, of course, by the government and civil society. Uh, and so one tendency is that the Islamic faith is placed at the center of an individual's identity and must govern all social and political decision-making. Now, how do you respond to, to that?
2: I mean, I, I don't know how to respond to that as a Muslim without now being called an Islamist because right. that, that underpins every Muslim's faith and people who don't practice the Islamic faith, right. any Abrahamic faith at least, yeah. and probably most other faiths, sure. like they would see that they're Faith comes at the center of their identity, Yes, right? That's that's the center of your identity. Like, how do you remove your faith from your identity while still practicing your faith? It doesn't make sense. I'm not sure where you can have it and how you can prove that it's not the center. You know, okay, it's not the center, it's on the periphery somewhere. Like, how do you even justify that to be cast outside of this definition?
3: Right, I mean, can you imagine any Muslim really in the mainstream that would be outside of this definition? um you know, mosques around the country would probably have sermons explaining to Muslims that Islam has to form the basis of your identity. I mean, it's what we teach our children from from the very early ages. So how do you like, you know, it, it's it's bizarre that someone like Shawcross could get away with saying something so general and so 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 obvious.
2: And yet he has and the recommendations have all been taken on by the Home Office. So <laughs>
3: Okay, so he carries on to say that uh, a an Islamist uh, would portray Muslim communities as under constant attack, both globally and at home. Um, so if you believe that Muslims are being attacked at home, prevent is affecting you know their lives and uh, the government is discriminating against them, but also you believe that I don't know the Uyghurs are being um, persecuted in in China or you know the um, uh, the uh, Muslims in Syria have uh, not received the type of help that the Mus- that the non-Muslims of Ukraine may have uh, received as a result of the recent tragedy. Does this mean that again you are you fall short of the government's definition of what is a a good Muslim?
2: You would, and I think a lot of that comes from firstly this idea of perceived grievance, like oh it doesn't exist; it's all in your mind. Yeah, um, and secondly the fact that this is a clear attempt to silence any criticism of the foreign policy or domestic policy. Um, As a Muslim, it is very clear that according to Shawcross's review and his recommendations, you cannot actively engage and be part of political or British life. Essentially, you cannot do the same things that your counterparts can do if they're non-Muslim. You cannot have a criticism, you cannot have a concern, regardless of how you evidence it. And that is what is What really stands out to me is the fact that he's saying these things with very little evidence, if at all. In fact, a lot of the stuff he he uses as evidence are articles like Daily Mail, BBC. Mm. Where is your evidence upon base? Like you've come to these conclusions, really serious conclusions. Where is your evidence? And so he's able to just get away with things like that. Whereas when we make certain statements about Prevent or anything else, we are evidencing it. Yeah, um, and in many cases with their own documents, you know, with government's own documents and statistics to evidence it, uh, and yet somehow that is wrong and a perceived grievance and is fueling extremism.
3: In the report, he mentions uh, one example, Musharraf Hussein. Now, of course, Musharraf Hussein is not here, so we don't want to focus on him. But um, on the record, Musharraf uh, Hussein has taken prevent money in the past. Uh, He contributed to a covenant between uh, the Muslim citizens and and UK armed forces, which was criticized, I think, by many Muslim groups at the time. Uh, He's been on visits to Israel uh, with various uh, Friends of Israel groups. So, you know, he doesn't seem like someone who would be criticized by this present government, but the report criticizes him um, uh, for making a, a remark in uh, 2021 about the Taliban changing. What does that tell us about how sensitive the government is to the types of actors it wishes to have within its own tent?
2: I think um, if you look at actually this particular example, hmm. um, he was also a signatory to the boycott when Shaw Cross came out right. in, in 2021. Yeah. So I think... What's even worse than just Muslims who are critical or raise concerns are Muslims who have been within Prevent or within the government spheres, taking money or you know, part of their projects, and have been seen as a good Muslim who have now come out and said, hold on, there's a problem actually with this particular policy or duty. Mm. Um, that's even worse because they've seen things on the inside and have still come away with that opinion. Um, And he's not the only person who's come away with that. And I think the moment you do that, then the tables will turn. Um, So that's the case for him or for anyone else, you know, regardless of what we think or feel about them having taken prevent money or not. That is a situation. The minute you decide to come out of accepting everything that's being said, Hmm. you know, you're part of the problem.
3: There is a a discussion about uh, increasing the surveillance aspects of Prevent um, and also to introduce something called disruption orders or, or to extend disruption orders to uh, enable the government to disrupt Islamic organizations and charities that may fall foul of uh, these new criterion that they, they've adopted. Um, it sounds very similar to the French um, um, system where many charities and groups have been shut down. Do you fear that if there is a legislative follow-up here, that the government is moving in, in that direction.
2: Yes, and I think we saw this and started mentioning it a while ago um, when we saw elements of Pursue, which is the other arm of the counterterrorism terrorism strategy, um, being introduced and essentially uh, encouraged to be part of Prevent. And this is exactly what this does here. It takes Prevent and says, okay, we have Prevent it's voluntary okay prevent on some level causes some disruption so for example when it comes to events at universities etc mm-hmm. you know they can have some level of authority in terms of disrupting those types of events yes. but actually they need more power more authority to, to disrupt and that falls within pursue now the threshold for people who are being pursued by MI5 is going to be higher than those who have been referred via prevent right so you're taking something that has a very low threshold and then trying to apply something that has a slightly higher threshold Mm. to it. So it's, it's a kind of backdoor way of introducing the powers. I think that the intelligence services have to disrupt activities, um, based on whatever their intelligence is to people who, you know, the majority of which are children, according even to their own statistics to children with ideas or organizations who are raising legitimate concerns about Prevent or any other policy for that matter, mm. um, and say, oh, it's justified to use it against them.
3: I mean, why hasn't there been a, a, a mainstream outcry against uh, this report and what the government at least says it intends to do? I mean, uh, the Home Office mentioned, I think it was in Bretherman in her, in her um, speech to Parliament mentioned that one possible option is to prevent or to disable um those speakers to, uh, to attend university campuses who just campaign against prevent so people like yourself would be denied uh, a platform at university campuses because you uh, campaign against prevent and its excessive um, aspects. Um, you know in, in any other walk in any other uh, part of, of civic life, you would imagine there would be a a, a liberal outcry against uh, such measures.
2: I think, firstly, this is already happening. So Prevent has already um, acted in a way to shut down and no-platform certain speakers. That is already happening. So to suggest that we're just going to start doing that is misleading. Yeah. Secondly, there has been a more mainstream outcry. Really? But it's been framed as if these mainstream actors don't exist and it's just a bunch of Muslim organizations who are calling for the end to Prevent or criticizing Prevent, even when um, you know, Policy Exchange released their report a few months, well, almost a year ago now, actually, probably about nine months ago, right. a few months after we published the People's Review of Prevent. Yes, It completely ignored all the other people who had signed, who were non-Muslim. It completely ignored all the mainstream NGOs, the Amnesties, Liberties, Iranimids, who had signed um, and who had supported the People's Review of Prevent. And it just focused on making it a Muslim problem. Oh, this is a group of Muslim actors. They're all connected somehow. They all have associations with extremists, um, and that's how it's been framed. So it's been very, very powerful to frame it in that way. And unfortunately, the media hasn't helped to undo that, um, which, which, like I said, is unfortunate because there are a lot of factors. I mean, the People's Review of Prevent, for example, was um, had the foreword by the UN Special Rapporteur on protecting freedoms while countering terrorism. It also had a foreword from Professor Conor who is Casey and a human rights uh, lecturer. So it's amazing that these people are kind of brushed to one side, pretend that they never actually endorsed this report or or signed a forward to it, wrote a forward to it, um, forget all the mainstream organizations and just go after the Muslim organizations and pretend like there's some underlying conspiracy here.
3: What's the role of people like Suella Braverman, uh, the Home Secretary in in Uh, developing these policies uh, towards the Muslim community. Of course, you've got Priti Patel before her, who had a very similar uh, way of thinking, I think, about about these sorts of issues. But Soella Braverman gave a speech in Parliament where she called um, CAGE, in effect, saying that CAGE is part of this trajectory and and CAGE International being a a, a civil liberties group in the Muslim community. And she criticised it for... Uh, for giving fodder to to extremism, um, and and she's you know she's unregretful with uh, a lot of the the very draconian measures that are being proposed by by Shawcross. Uh, do you feel that her you know people like Pretty Patel and Sweller Brethren have had have, have swayed these sorts of reports in the direction against Muslims?
2: So from when Pretty Patel was still um, Home Office Secretary. Hmm. Home Secretary, Home Secretary. Uh, home Secretary. <laughs> um, she was having meetings with William Shawcross, and that was exposed quite recently by Rights and Security International in an FOI, yeah, um, to show that the ho- there was Home Office interference in this report, yeah, um, which again just begs the question: How independent can this report possibly be? Yeah, uh, apparently it was put before them in April of last year, which it wasn't published until February of this year. So it has had amendments for almost a year um, by the Home Office itself. So I think not only does it beg the question, how independent can this report possibly be? But it goes to show that any of the recommendations, of course, they were going to be accepted, all of them, because they were probably half written or mostly written by them themselves. Um, so it's not surprising, I think. And that FOI just kind of cemented the idea that, yeah, this has been interfered with all along, not just by the fact that they appointed William Shawcross, but probably moments all the way throughout the pipeline development of this report.
3: Right. And can we go back to why you feel prevented so egregious? I mean, we spoke about it at length in our original discussion we had a few months back. Um, It just so happens, by the way, I was in a cafe uh, a a week ago, and um, I was sipping my decaf coffee, as I do. And um, uh, nearby me, there was a table of of a Muslim and a non-Muslim speaking, and I overheard the, the man saying that I was uh, I was uh, um, uh, the local council contacting me or local authorities contacting me. Someone had uh, had um, uh, spoken to Prevent about me, and uh, I couldn't. You know, obviously, I didn't want to uh, unnecessarily overhear this conversation, but he was quite loud, and he was saying that um, he had a dispute with his neighbour, and before he knew it, his neighbour had spoken to Prevent and was spoken to relevant authorities and said that he was an extremist. So he felt quite, you know, he was obviously quite appalled by this, that his neighbor would, uh, would do such a thing. He saw it as just a malicious, uh, a malicious attempt by his neighbor to malign him. Of course, it didn't go anywhere. And he said, you know, he was exonerated, but he was still quite stressed by the entire episode. Um, and I, you know, that was just an example, I felt, of, a, of how Prevent has impacted ordinary members of our community. But yeah, what's, what's you know, apart from that inconvenience, um, what else do you say wise prevents such a problem?
2: So I think this example that you gave is one way in which a lot of things can be abused, right? right. You can always maliciously use something that is supposed to be working or does actually work yeah. and abuse it in a different way maliciously. Like we see that with, even with social care, you know, neighbors calling when they've had a dispute or, you know, they, they they've hit their children or something and there's actually nothing to it. Right. So from that angle, I think that's probably one of the least in terms of worries uh, when it comes to Prevent. I think the main worry when it comes to Prevent is, firstly, the fact that the referrals are so discriminatory. And they always have been, and they continue to be to this day, um, are very, very discriminatory and targeted towards Muslim children. So because it was put on a statutory footing in 2015... They gave it the cover that it needed to be, you know, applied across the education sector, framed as safeguarding. And it's been taken up particularly by teachers and the education sector because that's where the majority, well, the highest proportion of referrals come from. Mm. Um, and so the fact that we have young, innocent children who have said nothing yeah. about, you know, actually planning or intending to do some kind of terror act. And instead have been, you know, playing games, referring to online games, mm. you know, drawing a cucumber, their dad cutting a cucumber. Um, you know, misspelling terrorist house, the 11 year old boy who said he would give alms to to, to the oppressed as right. in A-L-M-S. Right. It was instantly perceived as, oh, he's gonna, he's gonna give alms A-R-M-S because of course he's a young Muslim boy. Why yeah. wouldn't he be thinking of alms? Right. So, so there's this securitized lens and this assumption of a worst case scenario, particularly when it comes to Muslim children that Prevent has done. Yes. And I think that is something that we do see in some of our cases. But it's there even in places where we don't see cases materialize. like this has become the mindset and the lens with which people are now being looked at. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I guess we could argue that, look, prevent maybe stopping terrorism. And therefore, you know, if you have a million people referred and one of those people is a terrorist, then, you know, at least we've stopped another future Manchester arena or something like that, which a lot of people would think is a rational argument except there's zero evidence that prevent works because essentially what you're saying is that you can predict the future. You are not even glorified crystal ball gazing, but you are just crystal ball gazing when you say that this five-year-old child who has this particular idea or has made this comment or this 15-year-old even, or even 25-year-old has said this comment or is engaging in certain behavior or believes a certain set of beliefs is then going to go on to be a terrorist. And I think this is where we see a lot because they're stuck in their own conflation of terms between extremism, radicalization, and then terrorism, which is only now and again used to try and identify certain points. But actually, if we were to talk about terrorism all the time and carry on down that trajectory of talking about terrorism and things that might help to prevent terrorism, then we wouldn't have the need for all the confusion around extremism and radicalization because we would know clearly what led to it. We don't, and instead we're being told a lie that prevents somehow stopping terrorism. And every time we challenge and we say, where's the evidence to show that? Yeah, They don't give any. And this report by Shawcross recently does not add any evidence to that vacuum that has existed so far. Um And that vacuum continues to exist. He's delivered no evidence to show that Prevent is actually working to stop terrorism, given that's the objective.
3: So if it's a facade, if we argue that uh, they know that it's not really stopping terrorism. Shaw Cross talks about widening the definition of what extremism is. And of course, in practice, they've done that anyway. In practice, that's how practitioners and teachers and doctors, they view it. But he's arguing that even someone who believes that Muslims are oppressed around the world or someone who places Islam as the center of their identity, that person uh, is a potential terrorist or potential extremist, and there needs to be a, a way of disrupting uh, that person's ideology. So, if all of this is happening, surely there is a a more unsavoury intention behind prevent, and that is really to uh, to yes, create fear in the Muslim community. And I can imagine, you know, a a parent saying to a child that it's better not to talk about the Uyghurs or the Rohingyas in class. Talk about the Ukrainians, because that's a you know a, an acceptable form of of repression that we can we can highlight. Uh, so, there is this fear factor there's a censorship of course involved in self censorship involved in in prevent, but also, you may find I would imagine some Muslims who over time may decide that it is the best thing for them and their families not to focus on some aspects of Islam or even imams in masjids would would effectively feel the pressure because of prevent to to not talk about issues which For centuries, Muslim preachers, Muslim imams will be speaking about. Do you see that to be an intention behind prevent or, you know, is Shawcross in effect trying to change Islam or reform Islam through this securitization strategy?
2: I think it definitely has that impact because it disempowers the Muslim community. It makes them very fearful. Um, I know of examples where people have said, actually, you know, I was going to ask for my child to have a place to pray, but I'm a bit worried that if I start kicking up a fuss with the school about prayer spaces, then maybe that would be considered a bit extreme. Um, So these conversations are being had or, you know, like young girls, when they want to start wearing hijab and then the parents are like, actually, maybe don't wear it yet because it might raise a bit of a flag. And we have had cases where people have been referred um, because they started wearing the hijab. So I think people are worried about that. It definitely impacts on the religion. Um, Whether that is the underlying intention, um, perhaps from a lot of what Shawcross and people from that particular field have said, you know, this idea that there is such a strong, I think it's intimidating to find such a strong identity within your religion still, particularly as we're in a more increasingly like secular society um, and one that is seen like is equivalent to being more liberated, you know, in order to be liberated In order to be free, in order to be progressive, um, you need to leave behind your religion. Um, I think with Islam, it's one of the few places where you see, you know, that hasn't happened. It's remained as it is. People have continued to practice it as they have, um, regardless of which country they're in. You know, they don't have to be back home uh, in order to be practicing their religion, even when back home is down the road. (laughs) Um, So I think that can be quite intimidating to somebody like Shaw Cross, who has that kind of world for you that, oh my God, Islam's going to take over, Muslims are going to take over. Um, but that is one kind of theory behind it. As to whether or not that's the intention behind the whole thing, who knows? Yeah. But it definitely has that impact and that effect on people. If you're saying to people, you cannot participate as a Muslim um, in political life because anything you say that's critical is going to be deemed the extremist, then you're in effect excluding these people. Whilst at the same time then saying, well, you don't integrate enough and you don't take part in society. Well, how can people take part in society if they're Muslim? And the moment that they say something, it's deemed to be coming from this agenda, or as he calls it in the report, you know, bad faith actors are raising concerns about Prevent. Well, what is a bad faith actor? What is a good faith actor? Or is this a case of the wrong faith and the right faith? So I think that's where we're coming from in this whole report and how it's framed.
3: Leila, I've come across a number of Muslims uh, who now talk about hijrah to the Muslim world, leaving Britain and returning back to either their a country of their father, their parents, or you know another another Muslim country. I mean, I spent a few months in in Istanbul, and I was I would see, I I. They began. I mean, it, it was a slow process, but uh, a number of young Muslim families from Britain mm-hmm. uh, were, I mean, from Europe, you could see there is a that the rationale has been there for some time, especially in places like France and Sweden. But uh, I found that uh, Muslims were quietly quitting the United Kingdom and moving elsewhere. Um, do you worry about that trend? And do you see that to just increase as a result of um, reports like, like this?
2: Um, I'm not particularly worried about that trend. I think, you know, some people will make hijrah. Some people will decide to go and live elsewhere. Um, whether that's because they feel that the UK has become an increasingly more like hostile environment yeah. for them and their children, or whether they just feel that regardless that was always their intention and they would actually go and like to live elsewhere. Um,
3: no, it's that. But it's the hostility point. I mean, I I got to speak to, uh, for example, just an anecdote. It was one family, young family, and uh, uh, the child was barely two years old. So you know, it hadn't even entered the schooling process. And I asked, her well, why have you moved here to Istanbul? And the response was, I don't want my child to be, you know, brainwashed by this PREVENT strategy, and I don't want mm. to restrict my, my teaching of Islam uh, mm. to my child. So PREVENT was quite high up on the list of those people who are, you know, of those people who have decided to leave the country. I mean, I can't say yeah. it's in the tens of thousands or anything, but, you know, I, I think there was a, it was remarkable how PREVENT had, saturated had affected mm. um such such large numbers of people
2: i think we have to bear in mind that it has been like seeped through for 20 years now right the idea you know even if prevent wasn't on statutory footing and okay yes it was implemented in 20 uh 2006 mm. but for about 20 years this idea of like muslims um not quite fitting in has been seeping through the idea planted. So I'm not too surprised that some people would feel that way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, whether or not that's an intention of, <laughs> a purposeful intention of, of the strategy, that actually, you know what, we can make it a more hostile environment. Yeah. And, you know, as the racists would say, if you don't like it, go back home. Yeah. Even if you're second, third, fourth generation here, it doesn't matter because actually you will always feel that you you can, you can, have another identity elsewhere. You can actually go and live elsewhere if you please, even if a lot of people who have moved to Istanbul don't have roots in Istanbul.
3: <laughs> now, that's, that's perfectly right. Um, do you feel that um, the Cross review and uh, statements made by the government is, is no more than bluster? And, um, you know, this government is in its dying days. The Conservatives have pursued a very right-wing agenda. And uh, they've used Muslims and migrants as scapegoats, and they've, as you said, they've allowed the far right to to reign free. In, in many ways, there was a demonstration just a, a few days back in Merseyside, which turned nasty. And and you know the the impact on the government and and um, the mainstream media was not as as uh, as pronounced. I mean, do you feel that? Um, it's the dying days of a of a of an inept government, and things will probably change once the Labour government comes in, Keir Starmer comes in, and uh, we reset those relations with the Muslim community.
2: I mean, we have to remember that La- Labour government was the government that was in power when we had Prevent introduced in the first yeah. place. Yeah. Um, yes, it looked different, but resetting it to that version of Prevent isn't going to be any better Mm. for muslims in the uk if we if we roll it back and say oh actually you know this extreme version that shorecross is coming out with we don't particularly like that let's roll it back a bit and that has been some people's view that actually you know they're they're saying the absolute worst so that we can try to roll back to what we had before which was slightly less hostile Mm. and maybe you know it at least took on board what other muslim organizations were saying and try to get them to be part of the the solution rather than completely excluding them as extremists. So I think that's the danger is that we roll back to what we had in Labour government. Mm. I'm not completely convinced that once this government goes, another government will scrap Prevent, call for a truly independent review of Prevent to try and scrap it if the review actually shows that it's not working and it's causing untold harms, Mm. which is what we found that is causing untold harms, not only to Muslims, but particularly to children. Um, And that, is occurring regardless of who it's impacting, you know, whether it's impacting far right or it's impacting uh, Muslims, Mm. it doesn't matter. It's causing harm and it's not actually um, preventing terrorism as they're suggesting. And I find it very hard to believe that a government, the next government that comes in, if it is a Labour government, will have the desire to push back on prevent, like from all the other things that they're going to be concentrating. They're not going to be thinking, yeah, we're going to roll this back or we're going to stop it. We're going to end it, scrap it. Um, the Labour government has mentioned, there have been a couple of, of MPs um, from Labour, I believe, who have mentioned that this is like a terrible report. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure if once in power, they would then maintain that stance because obviously things then change.
3: So in your mind, I mean, finally, Dr. hajj do you feel that um, Prevent just needs to be removed? I mean, we um, there are enough... Rules and laws there are enough laws in on the legislative statute book to deal with um uh, possible acts of violent extremism and um uh, a a strategy like prevent has failed as we've you know we've we I, I think anyone can argue that um i mean its it's just obvious that the the strategy hasn't worked in the Muslim community for its intent purposes i mean mm. there may be some unsavory purposes behind it or motives behind it so do you feel that um the idea would be just to remove PREVENT and not to replace it with anything uh, of its kind.
2: I think definitely we are at a point where we can safely say that PREVENT needs to go. Yeah. And that is agreed upon mainstream as well as Muslim organizations. Mm. PREVENT needs to go. It's not working for its intended purpose. Mm. It's causing harm. It's curtailing other human rights. Um, not just free speech, but other rights. And it is causing harm across communities, not just to the Muslim community. So for all of those reasons, yes, Prevent needs to go. There are enough um, pieces of legislation in a very extensive toolkit that we have Hmm. to deal with terrorists or would-be terrorists. So we're not saying wait for a terror attack to occur. Would-be terrorists can also be captured under this legislation. Hate crime is mentioned as well as um, as part of Shorecross' report we have sufficient legislation to deal with that as well. So everything that is being excused under the banner of Prevent actually has a legislation. To say that, oh, critics of Prevent haven't put forward an alternative is misleading because there are alternatives already out there. And the money that's been stripped back from all of the services, be it social, mental health care, um, you know, youth services, can go back there. And all of those strips occurred in 2015 when then-conservative government put Prevent on a statutory footing. When we had Prevent priority areas being injected with funds to carry out something that, even by Shorecross's own admission, isn't working. So the report even admits that Prevent currently isn't working. Yeah. Um. So, I think it's time to accept it and close that book, get rid of Prevent, and move on.
3: Is that correct? Actually, one final question. I mean, you've been very active in the media, and you've you've spoken to many uh, press outlets. You know, Channel Four News and. Written a number of articles, and what motivates you to continue? You know, it seems to me that um, government doesn't care anymore. It doesn't care about the backlash in the Muslim community. It certainly doesn't care about campaigners like yourself, who are, you know, who are of course um, valiantly speaking out against Prevent. But it, it it doesn't for them. It that doesn't register. There isn't an electoral uh, support it requires to continue you know through the muslim community um, um what motivates you to continue and to um and to pursue this uh this um, um argument against prevent and, and the government strategy
2: what motivates me is that i'm not coming out from a campaigner lens i am coming out from a caseworker lens right um having been at prevent watch for just over three years now almost four years yeah I've personally dealt with over 200 of the cases, over 200 individuals who have contacted, and those individuals have families who have been impacted by Prevent. So when I'm speaking to one individual, I'm actually speaking to like six people potentially who have been impacted by Prevent.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, so that is actually what motivates me. It motivates me to see that these people, even Friday, Friday I got a call and somebody said to me he was visited by Prevent officers at his home. And he said, is this normal? And I didn't even know how to respond to him because I was like, well, no, it's not normal. But yes, it is normal. Yes. You know, it's not normal that that should happen the way they visited you and the questions they were asking. Yeah, But it is normal in a sense, you know, because you're not the only person. There are thousands of people in the same boat as you. Um, so I think that is what motivates me. And what also motivates me is the fact that people see the numbers and think that is the impact. You know, if you look at Prevent since they started reporting the numbers since what, 2015, 2016, mm-hmm. um, it looks like there's about 42 45,000 people who have been referred to prevent right that's not the scale of the impact the yes. impact is much broader because you have all of the public sector workers who have been trained on it all of the private sector workers who have been trained on it you have the people who've been referred to it mm. as well as all the people who know of its existence and so when we're looking at the impact of it it's huge um and so yeah it's very it's very live in my mind and i'm not looking at it as a campaigner it doesn't matter if they don't take notice of it the fact is is that these people who are being impacted can see actually i'm being represented my experience is coming to the fore and that was the main objective we had even with writing the people's review of prevent was that the way it's going to be different is it's actually going to take the people who have been impacted and put their stories forward and the evidence we use is going to be from their evidence you know from their interactions from the emails that have come from the prevent officers from the social workers so people can see actually how this is impacting human beings rather than being this boogeyman kind of you know islamist extremist or other
3: after this interview i may because i've interviewed you now dr Ato haj i may get a knock on the door from the prevent officer what should i <laughs> what should i do and what should i not do i mean give me some practical advice
2: Practical advice, I think people are a bit concerned when officers turn up at their door, which is a regular occurrence, so unfortunately. These, these
3: are uniformed officers? They're usually non-uniformed,
2: oh, yeah. Okay. They're usually non-uniformed officers, yeah. um, and they will come and they'll either say to you they're from the safeguarding team, or they'll say, or they will tell you that they're officers. They might mention that they're counterterrorism officers, but they tend to avoid using that term, even though they are, in really? practice, counterterrorism officers.
3: officers. Okay. Um, so it would always be a, someone from the police force, that would be the first, you know, they would come to your home first, right? Before any yeah. referrals are made later on.
2: The, no, the refer- when the referral goes in, so right. from a social worker or a teacher, yeah. the first thing that will happen once the prevent referral goes in, yeah. i.e. I have a concern about this person, okay. is that it will be vetted by the prevent officer, so the counterterrorism officer. So then you will get the visit <clears throat> after, after the referral right. has been made. So they
3: may, they may say, well, <laughs> there's nothing to worry about and, and the referral goes nowhere. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But
2: they would want to vet it first,
3: right? Okay, so they will vet it first. And so, <clears> say <throat> they believe that there is something here, and we need to investigate. They will send a police officer.
2: Even before then, they yes. will send an officer because that is how they vet it. Oh, okay. So they will right. usually send an officer. Okay. Who will ask you questions? Right. And that is how it's vet. So, for example, the Fortnite case, um, there was a prevent referral made. Yeah. And an officer was sent, the and for- the officer. The Fortnite, c- so Fortnite case is a four-year-old boy who. Um, mentioned the online game Fortnite. Okay. And was saying, oh, yeah, I'm playing with uh, guns and bombs in my dad's shed. Wow. Which, yeah, sounds horrific, except yes. he's a four-year-old boy of an imagination who's known to have older cousins who play online games yes. by the same person who made the referral. Right. So, obviously, they had to check this out. Yes. And uh, the way they checked this out was by going to the home. So, at 10.30 in the night, mum receives a knock on the door, opens the door, a police officer is there. Comes in and says, well okay, a four-year-old made, okay, yeah, this is rubbish, yeah. yeah? But it doesn't take away from that impact, the fact that she's been visited, and also the fact that when the referral came in, they could have looked at it and said, oh, a four-year-old child said this to you, yeah? Mm, okay. Instead, it still required that going to the home. So right. in every case, they will usually visit. They won't always visit your home. Yeah, like They might visit your place of work really? or school, yeah. Um, but they would want to vet, for themselves and speak to you for themselves and ask various questions for themselves in order for them to then say, okay, now it's a no further action, if that indeed is the case.
3: Right. And do you have to um, invite them in? Do you have to communicate with them? Can you say to them, "Um, please speak to my lawyers?
2: Yeah, you don't have to engage with them. Uh, I think most people do just because they're at your doorstep. Sure. (laughs) Um, But you can say to them, look, put your concerns in writing. Yeah. Um, which a lot of this stuff is done outside of any formality. Like you will get attended to at home, two officers or even one officer. Most of the time it is two officers. Right. Um, They'll speak to you. They'll ask you a load of questions. They'll go away and you've got no evidence that this has happened. No paper trail oh, right. or anything. Right. Um, And so this is one of our first obstacles that a lot of our clients try to get over. I was like, I was visited. I don't know why I was visited. What happened? Um, so we t- say to them, Look, you you didn't have to actually invite them into your home. Right. You didn't have to let them question your child if if they came for your child because the concern was around the child. They don't have to speak to your child um it's voluntary like you don't have to engage with them if you want to engage with them, you can, but if you don't want to, you don't have to, and obviously that is the decision of each and every individual to make, mm. but they should at least know where their rights lay and you know whether or not they have to engage with them, and also just asking them to put." in writing it's right. not you know you're not coming here because you are afraid that you know someone is uh planning or preparing a terror act mm. if you were you wouldn't be knocking at my door as prevent officers yes right you would be coming in with a lot heavier force so they wouldn't be coming as prevent so the fact that you are coming down uh, coming as prevent means that it's not an immediate threat even if you think there's a threat so why can't you tell me what the concerns are and put it in writing? And then I can decide, actually, do I want to meet you? Do I want to meet you with a lawyer? Mm. Um, so it's all these kinds of questions that you want to ask, really, just to understand. It's it's easier for the person as well to be able to deal, even if they decide to engage with prevent, yeah. to be able to deal with it if they understand what it is they're dealing with and what those concerns are. Um, once they open that door and kind of get the ball rolling, it's very hard to then roll back, right? Okay, I've opened the door. I've let them in. They're in my house. Oh, can we speak to your eleven-year-old? Uh, what for? You know, at what point can you say no? It feels very uncomfortable to then say no yeah. once you've opened that door. So we always say, well, in the first instance, ask the questions.
3: Right. Okay. And um, as we said last time, in most of the time after those initial, after that initial visit, um, there's nothing that happens after the visit. There's no further referral. Are these visits? Put onto a database anywhere? Do we know whether they keep a record of the individual that's been referred to prevent? Is there a is there a computer system that has you know twenty years down the line that you know I interviewed Dr. Uh, hard and someone knocked <laughs> on my door and twenty years later they you know it it flags up again on, on a, or or is this is it is that it you know it, it's not on any any system no
2: it is it is kept on a database because you've been referred to prevent so it will be logged on their prevent case management system and we know as well that a lot of the referrals because we still don't know much about how the data is being kept and when like at what point in the process do they decide to log it we've had cases where we know there's been a prevent referral yes but then when we've asked for the data from the police it's not on the police database So we know that there are more referrals than there are logged as part of the uh, Prevent case management system, and we also know that there are some that go on the Prevent case management system that are then shared across at least ten other police databases. So there was a high court uh, judgment which asked for the whether parents of an eleven-year-old child were asking for his data to be removed. Yeah, he'd been referred under Prevent, and they realised as part of that process that his data was stored across ten police databases, including. Yeah. Criminal database alongside, you know, murderers and actual offenders. Right. So that data is stored. It's stored under something they call moppy guidance, which means that it's stored for a minimum of six years before it's then reviewed. Yeah. So after six years, then it's reviewed. That's another misleading thing from the Shawcross report is he says, oh, the data is stored for six years. No, it's stored for at least six years before it's then reviewed. And they can keep it for another six years and another six years. And because it's stored under the banner of terror offenses yeah. under that category, it can be stored for up to 100 years. Wow! So it's very misleading to suggest that, oh, it's six years that it will be stored. No. And what is the criteria? Like who decides and where is that criteria that says after six years, we'll look at X, Y, Z, and then we'll remove it. Nobody knows what that criteria is. So that impact we have seen come to fruition in terms of, We've had um, older teenage boys particular, older teenage boys who've gone to sixth form and then their past prevent referrals have been used against them. So we had one where the place was withdrawn, so he was accepted to a sixth form. When he went in, he thought he was having an induction day. He went in for an interview and they were questioning him on his past prevent referrals and then they said to him um, that he w- his place was being withdrawn. This was in September. He was expecting to start sixth form. Yeah. So in September, he's left without a sixth form place because of this pa- past prevent referral. And that's not supposed to be the way they use these prevent referrals. But
3: wait, how did the school, the college have access?
2: Because the of office. the huge amount of data sharing I mean, that is allowed. Wow. Um, and essentially, the prevent officer, after the prevent referral had been made at his previous school, the prevent officer specifically said, and we have this in the email, he said, make sure that the uh, safeguarding file, so every child at school will have a safeguarding file yes. associated with them, which will travel through. It will go from primary to secondary and secondary to sixth form. And in fact, we also know that there's been sharing across universities with counterterrorism police. So that data can follow you and it can have impact. It's not something that just sits there mindlessly because, and th- that prevent referral came to nothing and his place was, was withdrawn. And we know another case as well where the child was sent home Um, in sixth form because he had made reference to something. I can't remember. He got into some kind of trouble, had nothing to do with prevent. And then they raised the fact that he had a prevent referral as part of secondary school and they sent him home. They didn't officially exclude him. They just sent him home. He missed almost two weeks of school, I believe. Um, And then he was allowed to go back in once the parent got in contact and said, hold on, why is my child? Either he's officially excluded and then I'm going to take you to court because you've illegally excluded him or he's not and he should be back at school. And it was only once that parent had spoken to us and realised, okay, this is the power dynamic I'm in. I can ask them either my child's coming back in or I'm going to take you to court. They were then able to do that and they were able to get their child back at school. But you shouldn't have to jump through so many hoops to just live a normal life. I mean, these prevent referrals came to nothing after all.
3: Hmm. Yeah, and no, I, I know I did say finally, but I mean, that sounds <laughs> very insidious, really. Uh, there's this database of 40,000 know, people or more Uh, who have been referred to prevent and potentially sometime in the future uh, that referral can be used against them in in any walk of life you've just described you know uh, what seems like a dystopian really that a school or college would uh, deny someone a place as a result of a previous prevent referral but you could imagine in the future that people could be denied jobs um, you know or that that require uh, a high level of you know a teaching job or Medical job because of a prevent referral. Um, Is there, you know, am I exaggerating there? Is there a potential for that to? There
2: could be potential. Obviously, we don't know how much it can be seen, but we have had people contacting us saying, you know, I want to find out what data is stored, if it's still stored, because I'm now applying for this job and it's going to require a a higher level security clearance. Um, In the two cases that I've had recently where they've asked me this specific question and we've done the subject access request and looked for their data. Um, their data was no longer stored on the database, or at least they didn't get that back in a subject access request. Obviously, there's a nuance there. It might be on the database, but they're not giving them access to it because right. they can say, you know, if we haven't given it to you, it's because of various exemptions. Um, so, in both cases, yeah, in both cases, they didn't get impacted. But the fact that people are worried about this yeah. and they're like, oh, hold on, I've been referred to prevent previously, now I'm going for a higher level job. And then we've had younger uh, clients who, you know, the parents have said, look, I want this off my child's record. I don't want it to impact them. And so they've taken the proactive measure of saying, no, I want this off right now. And so a lot of parents are now demanding remove the data. It's come to nothing. It was completely misinformed, even by your own logic. I want that data removed.
3: And and they've been successful in removing the data?
2: Um, they partially have been successful. So a few have been successful, it still takes some time. Right. There's never um, a straightforward response where they say, okay, we'll remove it. It always takes a few pushes and you know threatening legal action. And then they say, okay, hold on, we'll remove it. Mm-hmm. Uh, in one case, I think the mum waited about nine months, not just to get it removed. She waited a year to get it removed after asking. And then after they, admit, they um, accepted that they would remove the data, it took a further nine months for them to remove it, uh, which is insane because that means they stored it for almost two years from the point of his referral. Um, Thankfully, that wasn't a huge transition in his life, so he didn't particularly need that to follow him anywhere. But the fact that it took that long, even where they said, yes, fine, we'll remove it, just goes to show the challenge. And not everyone realizes they can ask for that data to be removed. And not everyone has the patience or the emotional like stability to be able to go through that process it is very draining.
3: Uh, JazakAllah Khair for all your work and thank, thank you. you for your time today. Thanks. Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website, thinkingmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. JazakAllah Khair.